Cue sappy music. Hey there, Fighting for the Faith podcast listener. Just want to remind you at the top of the program here that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know, no, the music isn't working. Kill the music. Yeah, sorry. I see other guys use sappy music. I, uh, bad idea. Remind me to talk to you after the program. Anyway, just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing this program to you. If you don't support us financially already, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. Fill it all out. You know what to do. Or if you would like to do the traditional thing, you can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now you can play your music. Yeah. Enjoy listening to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Tuesday, April 3rd, 2012. Now, I'll warn you ahead of time, we're doing our light edition today. It's a slightly shorter week. I'm in the middle of a postmodern research project, and um, as a result of it, I got to take the time to research and do other things, so... Light edition today because of my research schedule and the shortened broadcast week. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God Sadly, there's no shortage of crazy things being said out there. All of that is needless because, well, God has revealed himself in his written word. We can trust that. As for other people having liver shivers, visions, dreams, glory clouds, trips to heaven, all that other kind of stuff, you yeah, can't say that we can trust that. So um, here's what we're going to do today. Uh, like I said at the uh, the beginning of the program, I'm working on a research project. It has me steeped in reading postmodern folk like crazy and... It drives me crazy. In fact, if you follow me on Facebook and Twitter, you know that I took some shots today at postmodernity. And yeah, that was all just therapy. I just want to let you all know that was therapy. So, so what we're going to do today, um, what, now that we're done with our uh, Mike Horton series on the Great Commission, uh, we're going to switch back to the uh, lecture series from Dr. Daniel Van Voorhis about Christianity in America. And I'm going to pick up at lecture number seven entitled Christ and Culture, West Coast Christianity. And uh, and so, uh, you know, there. by the way, I skipped one. And uh, you, you can find it on the uh, faithcapo.com website. It's called The Gospel on the Airwaves. And uh, it 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 the reason I skipped it has nothing to do with the fact that I'm a radio broadcaster. That has nothing to do with it. If you listen to the lecture, then you'll realize that Dr. Daniel Van Voorhis kind of takes on how Christianity morphs in the United States when it takes to the airwaves, and he makes a point of basically saying that you know radio is is, a, is kind of a neutral medium. It's what you do with the message, but. Uh, that's a fascinating lecture. We will not be broadcasting it here at Pirate Christian Radio Fighting for the Faith. However, I think it's def definitely worth listening to. If you'd like to listen to it, you can find it at Faith 
capo.com, click on their media link. But today we're going to be listening to the lecture entitled Christ and Culture and West Coast Christianity. He's going to be looking at um, the Calvary Chapel movement, Chuck Smith, the Jesus people, and uh, Saddleback. So, the, I mean, this is a fascinating lecture to listen to. And uh, Dr. Daniel Van Voorhis does a fantastic job. I think he even uh, mentions, uh, he calls it Christian Pirate Radio, but it's Pirate Christian Radio. That that would be us here. Uh, but uh, anyway, so without any further ado, here is the lecture, Christ and Culture, West Coast Christianity, Dr. Daniel Van Voorhis. Here we go. All right. Well, let's begin. <clears throat> Last week, of course, we looked at church and culture. We were looking at the 1920s. We were looking at the birth of American consumer culture and how that affected the church. The, the birth of certain kinds of media and how the church used and sometimes abused that media. But you remember, of course, we talked about how media isn't the enemy. After all, here we are. We've got a website. These things aren't necessarily bad, uh, but they can be. And as the message of Christianity and of the Protestant church or the, the offshoot of the Protestant church in the early 20th century was becoming more consumer-based, just as the culture was in the 20s, and more character-based, so too did the churches. Well, finally, after six weeks, we started in 1630, we're here. Well, where is here? Uh, for a historian, 1968 was a long time ago. Uh, for me, 1968 was a long time ago. Uh, but this is modern. We are looking this week and next week at the modern church, the modern evangelical church in America. Now we've had six weeks or so of background. Now, many of you in this room and, and watching have had a firsthand experience with this uh, community or non-denominational or megachurch. For those of you who are looking for or have been looking for something more and found it in a confessional church, or if you're just looking about and you're curious uh, about the history of the American church or uh, the Lutheran church, I, I need to remind you at first, I am not a theologian and I am not a pastor. If you want the straight skinny on the confessional Lutheran church and what it can do, what it does, if you're coming out of one of these ubiquitous American churches, go to a church that preaches the law and the gospel and administers the sacrament. You can even use technology, podcasts, videos. You can go to issues, etc. You can go to Christian Pirate Radio. I think, however, the first place to go is to New Reformation Press. And if you're coming out of one of these churches or have intimate knowledge of this kind of church, you go and you listen to Dr. Rod Rosenblatt's The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church. That is a shameless plug, but something that should be heard by those who have the first-hand experience. I myself have no experience uh, with the church uh, that I'm going to be uh, discussing, except for as a historian. I have not been to these churches. I was not raised in the church. Now, the 20th century, the late 20th century and the early 21st century church is very easy to criticize. It's Frankly, it's like shooting fish in a barrel. And we could come here and we could make jokes and we could talk about how silly the American church is. Especially juniors such as myself. We can have a lot of fun at their expense. But I'm reminded, as we talk about this, of a parable. 
the parable where the two men go into the temple to pray. And the Pharisee stood up and prayed, God, I thank thee that I am not like other men. That's sort of a, a nice way to look at what we're doing today. We don't want to say, we've got those four letters in front of our church, so we're immune from this, the L and the C and the M and the S, so we're good, right? We don't, we don't have to worry about any of this stuff. We've got the spirit of Luther protecting us like a bubble. No. This is 21st century, 21st century America. We uh, are all... Uh, it's possible for us all to mirror the culture. Now, to start with the most modern, I'm going to go back a long time ago. I'm going to back 600 years, as a matter of fact. I'm going to talk about the medieval church for about a minute. The medieval church, on the eve of the Reformation, many think was a bad, terrible, declining, unpopular thing. That is not the case at all. The church on the eve of the Reformation, the late medieval church, was extremely popular. Had they had the technology, there would be podcasts, videos, giant football stadiums filled with people wearing rags and eating things with their hands. This would be the, the mega church, the place we're at now, mod, uh, mirrors the medieval church, pre-Reformation. The model of the pre-Reformation medieval church was this. Diversity without adversity. There was diversity without adversity, and not necessarily good diversity. What was more important to them? Or what was more dangerous, heresy or schism? Well, schism was worse, and so we'll deal with heresy. That's fine. A little bit of heresy makes for interesting talk over coffee. Uh, but we don't want to break up the church. We need unity at all costs. And this was the late medieval church. Christianity had been re replaced by Christendom. The creed and the culture had become one. And in the 20th century, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Now, the 1950s, uh, we were coming out of the Depression. America was as seemingly prosperous and suburban and Protestant as it had ever been. It was a kind of Gilded Age redux. Uh, this time, the Industrial Revolution replaced by the military-industrial complex. And just as that lost generation in the 20s followed the Gilded Age, the perceived culture embodied by the Nelsons, Ricardos, Waltons, etc., would spawn a new lost generation. And the church found itself looking to find these impatient juniors the disenfranchised, the hippie, the seeker. Those who had found their voice in the 20s uh, in Hemingway and Fitzgerald now found Ginsburg, Kerouac, and Leary. The last of the three found his way to Orange County, California. The new, the unwashed, the unconditioned, they were living on the edge of America, the last Western outpost of an American culture raised on the media. Leary, of course, asked these men and women to tune in, turn on, and drop out. And Leary's story is absolutely fascinating and something we won't go into here. Uh, but Timothy Leary, who had a large effect on, the, on the, the, the culture in Orange County, from where the Calvary Chapel and the Saddleback Churches will be birthed, was 
pursuing this counterculture just uh, up or down the road in Laguna Beach. Uh, the president, President Nixon, called Leary uh, the most dangerous man in the country. If you're familiar with the Weather Underground or the Weathermen, uh, they helped break him out of jail. It's, a, it's an absolutely fascinating story. Well, Leary had a number of associates, some very close, uh, and some who were just imbibing the general countercultural uh, message that he was helping to proclaim. In 1968, uh, a young pastor, Chuck Smith, had moved his church from Corona to Costa Mesa. And his wife, uh, in uh, a, a recollection of this time, uh, was worried about these, quote, damned hippies. So Chuck Smith had his daughter's boyfriend pick up a hitchhiker on the side of the road to see what these damned hippies were all about. It turns out this hitchhiker was a man by the name of Lonnie Frisbee. He has been called perhaps the first Jesus freak. His relationship with Pastor Smith and this, Calvary, this Costa Mesa Calvary Chapel is ultimately a stirring story that reveals the cultural significance of Calvary Chapel in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And it also is a story about the ultra, ultimate uh, splintering of this church. Frisbee, who had entered the Laguna Beach homosexual scene at the age of 15, uh, became one of the first prominent hippies to give a testimony at Calvary about his old lifestyle and how he had been transformed. But Calvary Chapel, which would then have its own trajectory from fringe to mainstream, was to lose Lonnie Frisbee in its first major schism. Frisbee befriended an ex-Calvary Chapel pastor named John Wimber, who started the Vineyard Christian Fellowship in Anaheim, Orange County, in the early 1980s. And this would begin to mark the very strange relationship between evangelicalism, Pentecostalism, and mainstream Protestantism. Frisbee's story is significant as he came out of the Calvary movement, joined the vineyard, would eventually be held in suspicion, he would be tracked, and when the church real leaders realized or admitted their knowledge of his homosexuality, and Frisbee died of AIDS in 1993, he was written out of the sanitized history of Calvary Chapel, of the new evangelical and mega church. Now why this small, seemingly insignificant story to start my talk on the community, evangelical, and mega churches? Because as we have some critical distance from this movement, it started in the 60s, now in 2012. As we can see what it spawned, we can ultimately judge it by historical standards. I'm not just going to be descriptive. We can judge it by historical standards. What was it trying to do? Did it succeed? What has become of this uh, evangelical community megachurch? How has it shaped or been shaped by American culture? If the story of Lonnie Frisbee tells us anything, it's perhaps insight into the once radical, now mainstream churches that began as radicals in their youth and have settled into suburban mediocrity in their middle age. It's the same story of the radical Methodists and Presbyterians and Congregationalists in the 19th century during that second great awakening. 
and how those churches took a decidedly non-doctrinal, non-sacramental, and heavily emotional approach to the gospel, and how it would ossify into the empty, cavernous theology and buildings of mainline churches today. Usually there's a little more fun here, but as you can tell, uh, this is serious. <clears throat> this is where we have, this is where we are, and we're not going to just take it lightly and shoot fish in a barrel. We do have some funny pictures to look at later, though. In his book, <laughs> Mine Eyes Have Seen the Glory, journalist and sometimes historian Randall Balmer uh, recounts the story of the beginning of Calvary Chapel. It's an interesting book. Interesting. That's a word historians use to mean, eh. <laughs> In his chapter, Calvary Kickback, he recounts the story of going to Calvary Chapel. Now, he himself grew up in the evangelical church and then and left it, and he's going back as a journalist type. And he, before he even tells the story of what happens inside this building in Costa Mesa, he doesn't talk about the worship style. He doesn't talk about the footwear. He doesn't talk about the, the shirts or, or what have you. But where he lingers are the bumper stickers on the cars. And he spends quite some time noticing that he had never seen such an array of bumper stickers on cars in one place. Now, I am not here to judge bumper stickers on cars. I myself have a few. None of these, though. If you look at the white page uh, that has some pictures, you can get a picture of not just some, I mean, there are some radical ones on the right-hand side, but the kinds of, uh, kinds of bumper stickers. Here are a few uh, that I, I found uh, for purchase. Uh, I did not purchase them. Uh, got Jesus? It'll be hell without him. Uh, the Taco Bell Chihuahua, Yo Quiero Jesus. Warning, in case of rapture, this car will be unmanned. Get right or get left. For eternity, smoking or non-smoking. Of course, we know the answer. Smoking. I mean, they'll be, I'm sure they'll be smoking in heaven. Um, th there's this bumper sticker theology. Look at the picture. Uh, you can, like I said, uh, <laughs> poorly made uh, photocopies. Uh, warning, in case of rapture, this car will be unmanned. Of course, many of you have seen this one uh, in the Calvary Chapel movement, in the community churches. What becomes the most important thing to get right? The end times. Are you pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib? Late mid, that, 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 uh, they're, uh, it's confusing. And if you guys have never heard this, awesome. <laughs> Read the B-I-B-L-E. Hey, that's a good idea. It's basic instructions before leaving earth. Hey, that's not really clever. Also, that's nothing but law. Basic instructions. Do this and you'll get on a cloud somewhere with a harp. The one below that, Jesus is coming. Yes, that is true. Get right with Jesus via justification by grace alone through faith alone on account of Christ. Well, it doesn't go that far. Or get left. And then this one, right underneath that, there, uh, Jesus is coming, but I have State Farm Insurance because I need to hedge my bets. And then right there, caution, I stop at all Walmart stores. Uh, I'm going to actually bring in Walmart to all of this because the mega church, uh, uh, the modern evangelical church in Walmart, uh, not, not a huge difference. And then on the side, well, uh, on, the, on the other side, I'm just having fun. I just, I just put in uh, into Google something like crazy Christian bumper stickers. And these are what shows up. And I don't, I think we should just leave those alone. Calvary Chapel. You know what it moved, it came out of? 
It came out of the Foursquare movement. Now, last week we talked about the Foursquare movement. That was Amy Semple McPherson. That was the beginning. That was the 1920s. That was the beginning of the character-driven church, the personality, the charisma. That's where Chuck Smith comes from. We won't uh, use the genetic fallacy and say, therefore, that's why everything turned out the way it did, but it is of note. Because Chuck Smith and the Calvary Chapel movements have made it a point to say that they are not a denomination. This is non-denominational. I was a little bit horrified this morning when I came to church, and there was my name on the sign, and it said, Dr. Daniel Van Voris, no creed but Christ. I thought, no, that's just the... So I went out with a pen and wrote the modern megachurch. Um, it's not what I'm saying here in the sermon. If you can download it, today is the 11th of February, 2012. Uh, the sermon by Pastor Rohde uh, deals with this very nicely. Calvary Chapel is anti-label. But they want to make sure that they uh, anti-label except for their cars in the parking lot. They want us to make sure that they're not, but they're not Pentecostal. They claim no creed but Christ. Well, with all this talk of 501c3s and the news and the like, I decided to look up some stuff online. And did you know you can't use the name Calvary Chapel? It's not allowed. It is necessary, quote, that every applicant fill out an application. Winner, you are approved as a Calvary Chapel. CCOF will grant you the right to use the name Calvary Chapel and the Dove logo. Both of these are trademarked entities of Calvary Chapel and should not be used until approval is given in written by CCOF. But it's not a domination. It's just free, free spirit. Except for all the legal talk and some of the things that have gone on. This is, in fact, a denomination. Calvary Chapel is an interesting story. I mean, just from a historical perspective, it started out with about 25 people in 1965, between 65 and 68. Today, the, the uh, membership has, there's some, something over 15,000 at that Costa Mesa church. Some 850 churches are using that copyrighted label. They claim to be the midpoint between evangelicals and Pentecostals. Now, part of this emerged as the various splits took place in the 1980s. In the 1990s, this Via Medea, or this middle way, wanting to be somewhere between evangelicals and Pentecostals, would become the model for the megachurch. And so we have the Calvary Chapel movement starting in Orange County, which shouldn't surprise uh, many, is going to splinter. It's going to splinter. Uh, the vineyard movement is going to come from it. They're going to, as I mentioned, sort of in their middle age, uh, become less radical. And so the juniors who are impatient become more radical. And so the charismatic churches, the vineyard movement, they come about and they are the new, uh, the new youngsters, the new radicals. And then... As opposed to that, we needed something new to distinguish from the super-radical church. And here is, also in Orange County, the birth of the megachurch. So we're talking about Calvary Chapel, and that's 15,000. That's, that's a lot, but technically not classified uh, by uh, many research centers as a megachurch. But out of that grows the megachurch. So what is a megachurch? Well, I, a megabyte, uh, what's that? A million bytes, okay. So I don't think numbers will help us at least 
using uh, the metric system. Uh, what, is a, what is a mega church? Well, some uh, researchers have decided to give us a handout that I've decided to copy uh, that we can look at. So look at the, the handout that looks like this. These are just some recent stats, and I'll, I'll walk you through. This uh, was all over the Internet a while back. And I, I want you to just look at the world of megachurches as seen by uh, various uh, committees. Um, uh, this from uh, Forbes magazine. What does an average megachurch look like? After all, is it just a big building? Well, let's look at the demographics. A, a megachurch is one that has between 2,000 and 2,999 members. I don't know. What's bigger than mega, Terra? Maybe a Terra church? That's when you get over a megachurch. Uh, but it's, it's in the 2,000s. What does the average megachurch member look like? Well, this is important. 85% of them are white. 48% of them are located in a young suburb outside a major city. The average founding year was 1971. Why is any of this interesting? Because it tells us this probably has a shelf life. It probably has a shelf life. The average age of the senior pastor is 50. And this was a few years ago, so the average pastor is going to be retiring pretty soon. And what happens when one prophet, so-called, steps down? Who knows? So what's going to become of this movement? I don't know. Uh, don't ask historians to project the future. But these are significant numbers. We can see most megachurches are evangelical, right below that box, hard to read, I know. Uh, evangelical, uh, their evangelicalism makes up 56% of most megachurches. So most of them would call themselves evangelical. What does that mean? That's the other handout. I'll get to that in a second. 8% are charismatic, some are Pentecostal. What's the difference? Uh, <clears throat> some are moderate, some are seeker, some are traditional. Thanks, Forbes. Uh, some are fundamentalists and some are other. So that's helpful. Thanks. Um, but if we look below that, we see something else. Membership is climbing. These megachurches are still very, very popular. Membership in all of the different sizes, up to the ones that are 10,000 to 15,000, these are, these are growing. Look, in 2009 and 2010, where we have some reliable numbers, what happened with the budgets? Did they go with all of the rest of our budgets and start to go down? Nope, they went up. Do most of them plan to hire more staff? Yeah, 71%. Is this a, a good business model? I'll leave that to someone else to deal with. But this movement has a shelf life, and it keeps growing and growing and growing. What's going to happen? I don't know, but these historically with patterns, this doesn't look good. And you can see how much the staff makes. Um, perhaps uh, even more shocking is the number of staff. The average number of full-time staff members, 59. Imagine dealing with those contracts, huh? Wow. Mega churches in America. In 1970, you know how many there were? Ten. In 2005, 1,500. Someone do the math. Nine, in the, in the beginning of the 21st century, the first decade, nine of ten 
90% of megachurches doubled in size. This is, this is something else. This is, I mean, these numbers are shocking. These numbers, we need to be able to look at them, and we might, as some have said, listen, if this is, this is there's something successful here. Something is happening. But there has been uh, some other research done. Well, it's revealed in a survey. It's been shown. There's a, a book called Beyond Megachurch Myths, What We Can Learn from America's Largest Churches. It's revealed that only about 6% of megachurch attendees are at their first church. Look at the numbers. Uh, some have called this the Walmart effect. Since the mid-50s, the reported church attendance of Americans has remained steady, about 45%. Church attendance is staying the same. So the church, perhaps, is not growing at all. It's simply consolidating. These numbers are impressive, but are more and more people coming to church? No, more and more people are shuffling churches. We need to put these numbers in perspective. Two-thirds of the members of megachurches have been members for fewer than five years. We might call this the Weight Watchers effect. It's a revolving door. They're going to lose people and bring others in. Lose people, bring others back in. The numbers look fantastic. But we need to have a discerning eye. So is this historically significant? Yes, that's why we're talking about it, and we have the background we do. It's like the Great Awakening or the late medieval church. Both were symbols of cultural and theological decadence. It's a pattern. Now, a, theolo a theologian can do comparative dogmatics and show exactly what makes these groups peculiar. They certainly are. But that would involve finding the doctrinal stances of the modern churches. Well, the past five, maybe six years, uh, as I've been teaching courses on this topic, uh, I go to the various websites to find what they believe. Go ahead. Get on your smartphone. Try and find it. There used to be a what we believe, and now it's very hard to find them. And now doctrine or belief, that word is gone on most of the largest. On, I, I looked at the top ten churches. Uh, on four of them, I could find nothing. On only two of them could I find the word doctrine. Right now, they're core values. They're mission statements instead of beliefs. No creed. Well, it's a kind of creed. It's just a very modern 20th, 21st century business model creed. A core value statement, a mission statement. You guys, myself, we're familiar with the late 20th and 21st century culture. And we can see the church modeling it. We can see the church doing the same thing. And to us, us moderns, we might think, hot dog, good thing. But the historian who looks at this says, that rarely ends well. Rarely ends well. Well, one of the questions that we need to ask when we're talking about megachurches, evangelicals, fundamentalists, Pentecostals, charismatics, other, uh, seeker-friendly, uh, whatever, we have to ask ourselves, who are these people? And this is hard. I've put together a small handout. It's, I believe, on a green sheet of paper. 
to just help us be a little more particular when we're talking about evangelicalism. And, and this has been uh, worked and reworked and still is, is not perfect as labels never will be perfect. I had this student who kept badgering me about certain things that made me think more and more. And look, he's here again today. <laughs> evangelicalism. Well, this, the evangel, right? This, the evangelion, this comes from uh, Genesis. Uh, but in the 16th century, the evangelische Kirche, uh, this is what Luther's church. Remember, Luther said, whatever you do, don't call your church Lutheran. <laughs> nice, nicely done. Um, and instead, it was the evangelische Kirche. It was the evangelical church, the church that had recovered that evangel, that, that evangel, that gospel. And then evangelicalism became, in the 18th century, and this is stuff you can see online or, or look up, uh, it became associated with George Whitfield and John Wesley and Jonathan Edwards. Well, that's a motley group right there. I mean, that's all, I mean, those guys don't fit. I mean, for heaven's sakes, uh, John Wesley, that's, that's Methodism, and Jonathan Edwards, that's uh, scary, scary Calvinism, and George Whitfield, he's sort of somewhere in between. By the 1820s, this evangelicalism was the dominant form of Protestantism. It broke into revivalism. And so evangelicals and revivalists were, were quite similar. They were theologically conservative, at least early on, First Great Awakening. They believed in the supernatural. They had a high view of scripture. But then they had an emphasis on conversion methods. If you know anything about 19th century advertising into the 20th, 20th century advertising, you know this is, is the, the, the birth. This is where we're going to start identifying particular groups and finding out what makes them tick psychologically and grab them, whether it's for snake oil or soap or church. Well, post-Civil War, uh, we have the end of the so-called benevolent empire, uh, where Christianity and the state sort of uh, were, were, were okay wasn't a lot of antagonism, but that benevolent empire began to collapse. Urbanization, industrialization, new intellectual and theological developments began to chip away at this evangelicalism. Exactly what it was, we're not quite sure. But in the 20th century, the time we're looking at now, we can look at three different periods of evangelicals. The first, they were looking to convert sinners. They were concerned with social action. There was an amount of biblicism. Of course, this leads to uh, the, uh, all the talk of end times. and the, the, it, It's a little bit rigid. But they do have a high view of Scripture. And there is a Christos, Christocentrism uh, in many of these early 20th century evangelicals. And I wrote next to that pro nobis, Christ on, doing it on account of us. They didn't have those magical four letters in front of their church names, but they were doing some good things. Well, the second part of the mid-20th century, early to mid, this is where we get things influencing the megachurches, the Calvary churches, and the like. They are a style as much as a substance. It is Amy Semple McPherson. It is Chuck Smith. It is all. It is the character whose average age is leading towards retirement, and we're going to need new characters. Nevertheless, it's disparate. It's becoming more and more disparate as it's becoming 
all sorts of things. Uh, and it is broad. It's going to embrace the Charismatics, the Pentecostals, the Black Baptist churches, which are going to have their own influence, especially in the South. And then we've got the third period. Uh, this is primarily up to the 70s, but, but we understand it still today. It's a reaction to anti-intellectualism. There was in the mid-20th century a group of evangelicals, uh, names like Carl Henry. Uh, uh, there, there's a, a thing called, um, of course, I'm going to forget the magazine now. What's the big magazine? Carl Henry? Yes, that magazine. Ah. <laughs> uh, can we, we can edit this out, right? We'll fix this in post. Uh, there's a, uh, is it Christianity Today? That's the, that, yeah. Christianity Today, today is sort of like a Us magazine of Christianity. Well, it used to be theological. And these were the evangelicals. And they were putting these things out with a high view of Scripture. They were against these belligerent and separatist uh, fundamentalists. But they were still shaped by core personalities, such as Billy Graham, and institutions such as Wheaton and Calvin College. Not necessarily all bad things, but they were identified with certain things, with people. Fundamentalism. Uh, real fast, Israel McGrew, do you like this term, fundamentalism? It's all right? Okay, thanks. Uh, that wasn't what you said in class. Maybe it's a meaningless term. <laughs> I'm going to pick on you every week you come. Uh, what is it? It's a reacting against modernist theology, this fundamentalism. And remember, the fundamentals, those weren't bad things. That was a reaction to anti-supernaturalism. It was against modernist theology. It wanted to regain the Protestant denominations. J. Gresham Machen was a fundamentalist. Don't be afraid of the early fundamentalists. They wanted to regain mission boards and seminaries. But then it became kind of strange because they started becoming very enmeshed, or they were already enmeshed in the culture, and so they supported things like prohibition, and you can have your own opinion, uh, but we did get another amendment that got rid of that terrible amendment, and Sunday blue laws. You've been to the South. I was in the South a couple years ago for the first time. Who knew? That's crazy. You can't, where's the fear? I don't have it. Um, <laughs> They defended, I was shocked, I was terrified, uh, defended, they defended traditional Protestant morality. Hey, that's not bad. You just have to defend traditional Protestant morality. They wanted to attempt uh, to stop the teaching of evolution in public schools. But since the 40s, it became aggressive. Remember, I, I brought up that quote, what is a fundamentalist? It's an evangelical that's angry about something. And they wanted to be more separate. They wanted to separate themselves from culturally decadent and apostate churches. Those who, in their mind, had imbibed the, too much of the spirit of the age. And then you have the Pentecostals, or the Charismatics. Well, this goes right... You could, to, this is the medieval church. Itinerant evangelists. An emphasis on the end times. This isn't just particular to them, but it's, it's huge. As a matter of fact, Calvary Chapel, has, 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 uh, they're one of the main modern American churches that made this the, one of the centers of their theology. I'm not poking fun, but if you have been to a Calvary Chapel, if you come out of that movement or, or one of its associated churches, you know more or you have more... You have talked about the end times much more than most people ever have. I'm just being descriptive. And now judgmental. Stop it. 
can I do that? And I say, it's, it's peculiar. But, the, I mean, this is, this is not uncommon. Uh, uh, in the Reformation period, there were, there were, imagine this, there were some kooky Lutherans. Really? Some silly Lutherans. I've never seen one. Yeah, that did the same thing. So this happens, right? This, this emphasis on the end times, this emphasize, the, the Pentecostalists emphasize signs and wonders. The baptism, oh, baptism, we just heard, no, 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 the baptism in the Holy Spirit. The second blessing, a new outpouring of the Holy Spirit. I see some heads shaking because you know this is the language. There is an exuberant worship style. Okay, well, in the Psalms, David says we're supposed to praise the Lord, and that's fine. Uh, but it's for a very particular time period. It's linked to a very particular time period, early to mid-20th century. And then uh, glossolalia, uh, the speaking in tongues. I, I'm not even, I didn't even write notes there. I don't want to go. But that's, that's something that is a little more particular uh, to that church. What's the problem? Well, the problem is, you might say, well, uh, uh, Dan, uh, I've been to a Calvary Chapel. I've been to a Pentecost. I've been to this. And you're wrong. To which I'll say, eh, you're probably right. Well, then why can't you give us this here, you jerk? Because oftentimes it's up to the pastor. It's up to the pastor. No creed but Christ? Well, that's interesting. But what we find is the theology of these churches mirrors the theology of the pastors, the cult of personality. They tend to either not be theologically trained or self-trained or at particular seminaries like Dallas Theological Seminary, uh, which is extremely uh, uh, into the end times and understanding the end times at the expense of perhaps the gospel. And so what are these labels, the evangelical, the Pentecostal, the charismatic, they are simply historical uh, guidelines to look at what the weird 20th century has given us. But it's going to be based on the individual. Oh, it's popular. These megachurches, uh, the Calvary chapels, these are popular. You can see the numbers here. So too was the medieval church. That church that embraced... Diversity without adversity. That church that was in need of a reformation. I'm going to stop here uh, because I, I know that there are going to be questions. Um, and I was thinking through questions and I thought I wanted to give plenty of time uh, because this is such a nebulous topic uh, and modern and many of you are familiar with it firsthand. I want to answer questions but from a historical uh, perspective uh, to the best of my ability. So uh, Jim Lowe has the uh, microphone. So if you want to uh, shoot some questions at me that I can dodge. Uh, and send it to the pastors, I'd love to. Um, as a lifelong Lutheran, I came across an Assembly of God person in the mid-70s. Yeah. And she explained to me that unless I spoke in tongues and was to be rebaptized by the Spirit, I wouldn't be saved. And it brought her to tears. Yeah. And I, uh... it may, you know, I just here to witness the fact that they do believe that. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, it's very true. And, and this, is the, this is why we can't say there are certain things. Uh, now, what's interesting, as each church wants to be cutting edge, how, how do you become cutting edge? You, you change things. You drop things. Oh, that's old hat. That's, been, that's like 15 years old. Uh, let's move on. Uh, but this is one thing that has stuck around. Some churches are leaving that. Um, at, I know at the Calvary Chapel, they've been careful with that, um, but a lot of churches have not been. And to say, yeah, unless you are rebaptized in the Holy Spirit, how do, then you are not saved. How do we know you're rebaptized in the Holy Spirit? You speak in tongues. What does that look like? Um, I have a, um, a, a, an old uh, student who was into this, and he got into a big room, and he said he couldn't speak in tongues. And uh, they said, then you need to say, want to buy a Honda over and over and over and over again. And soon, sure enough, pretty soon, he was saying it. He was speaking in tongues. Questions in the back? We're not going to try it here. You try it at home. I, don't, it's, I mean, that would be, be ridiculous. And Pastor Hodel might hear us, and he'd you know, wonder what, what I was doing in here. Yeah, Dan, <clears throat> where does uh, some of the newer churches, like the emergent churches and uh, Mark Driscoll, and so, are, they, are they following the, the same model as the All mega right. church? Thank you. The emergent church or the emerging church, there's a difference, <laughs> and it's dumb. Um, there, I'm just kidding. It's important. It's, it's important. Uh, that's actually next week. Uh, we're going to talk about where we are now now, like 2000. 12. Uh, and of course, we know about um, uh, the emerging church, the emergent church, um, the, the various controversial books that have come out. Their reaction to the mega church and their actually response to, they are sort of trying to go back, selectively remember parts of the Reformation, go back to the medieval tradition. It is very peculiar. Uh, that's where we're going to put a, a lid on, on my yapping. That'll be next week. In the back, yes. Yeah, yeah, Dan, would you agree with this argument? You know, I was there for 13 years doing that, doing that thing, actually teaching there. And I've argued that the, the reasons why these churches have been so popular and the attendance is so huge is twofold. And there are probably a lot of reasons, but I, I, I think two stand out. One, the campfire songs that, that draw them in. If, I think if you took out the campfire songs, 90% would leave. And then secondly, the... Uh, confusion between sanctification and justification, and that turns out to to what I call meism. You know, you've got this whole progression of what ha- what I must do to save myself and how I can contribute to that. And we're all interested in me more than anybody else. Now, if you took those two things away, those churches would be would, would be empty. That's what I've argued. Do you agree with me? Um, I I'll take the first part first. Uh, that with the music, um, music is a very powerful thing. Music. Uh, is a major part of the Reformation. Reformation song and hymn is a major part. And so the, the power of music, much like the power of media, is something that needs to be watched very, very carefully. But we don't want to just say it's bad, right? It's, uh, it's, there's mu- different, musics for di- different kinds of music for different things. I'm, I don't deal with music, save my, my uh, iPod in the car. But there is a power to music. And when you can harness it, and these churches have, right, whether it be Hill Songs or Calvary Chapel, uh, they use that. And they use it to bring people in. They use it for various reasons. And that's okay, fine. But what are they doing there? Well, is there a, is there a, a, a mix-up between what is justification, what saves you, and what is sanctification? Um, the theologians could answer it better, but, but I, I would say yes, there is. Uh, the idea of justification is uh, much more, even the term, it probably isn't used 
um, we're going to look at the late medieval church and see many parallels um, where it is, what am I doing? And the late medieval church, it was a pilgrimage. Uh, what is it today? Uh, all, any number of things. So I, I think those are very good points. If those two things were, ch- were changed, then the church itself would be changed. The nature of the evangelical church today would be changed. Um, I have a question. Where does something like uh, Compass fit in, you know, Compass Bible Church? Because they're not like the mega church. They do focus a little bit more on doctrine. Yeah, yeah, thank you. There, there are exceptions, and I, I think that they are the old evangelical model. The old evangelical model, high view of scripture, doctrinal. Um, if you look at the, the mid uh, on the green sheet, um, if you look at the, the first wave of evangelicals, uh, you can see that it, it sort of fits that model, right? There's a high view of, of scripture. There is a type of Christocentrism. There's a conversionism. And, and so that's, that's the model. They're, they're sort of stuck back there. I'd rather many churches be stuck back there than in the modern uh, mess uh, or peculiar situation. Uh, but, but that's where I would find a lot of these um, old, old time, that's where they belong. I, I would say that's where they better fit. Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. And the fundamental is this is, this is the justification, sanctification bit um, that, that, is, that is at the heart theologically of all of this. Um, the justification by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone, uh, that is the, the, a theological um, truth that <clears throat> we hold in the Lutheran church, um, and, and we hold it to be central. And, and that's not like every other church. We're peculiar in that way. And a historian could, could call us peculiar, and I'd say, okay, fine. You have discussed a lot of movements, how they have come and gone and changed and started and ended and all that stuff. Do such movements in history have a particular average shelf life? Do they do yeah. they come and go, and how fast does that happen? Yeah, no, I, I, that's a very good question and something that many people have worked on, right? They use their calculators, and they say, okay, it starts here, it starts there. The problem is, as culture gets faster, uh, things get fat, right? What's a, what's a uh, let me just use an example, a TV show, a bad TV show in the 1970s. How many people are watching that? Well, a lot of people, because there's only three channels or so I've been told. And what happens is, because uh, I was young, and so what happens is uh, that it's, it's like, it's like three years. You only got three seasons? Oh, what a terrible show. Well, now a show is pulled after one episode, right? As the culture speeds up, uh, the shelf life of things speed up, right? And so uh, I think that's what we'll find is we'll find that some churches are going to open on Sunday in, in May and close in August uh, because their Twitter feed goes down. <laughs> and you think I'm being trite here, but that's, that's the way, that's the, 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 uh, how, how rapid culture is changing. And that's just going to make the turnover that quick. And so with this Walmart or Weight Watchers effect of people coming in and out, that spinning door is just going to keep going. And unfortunately, it's going to shoot people off uh, away from the church unless there's something they're holding on to. You mentioned uh, Gresham's name a few times. Where does he fit in the early uh, 20th century? Yeah, Jay Gresham Machen is the, uh, the early 20th century. He is the best of the fundamentalists and probably would not want to be called a fundamentalist, uh, but his work on uh, Christianity and liberalism is the first intellectual pop in the nose uh, to the modernists that say, you're not even Christian, you're something else. 
Um, J. Gresham Machen, I, I mentioned him before, uh, Presbyterian started the OPC. They are peculiar in their own way, uh, but uh, he is um, uh, one of the giants of the early uh, church, early evangelical church. Who came up with the anxious bench? The anxious bench, who came up with it? I'm, I want to say Finney, um, but the practice is medieval of bringing, there's a great story of this couple that were doing things that were, they shouldn't have been doing. They weren't married and makes babies. And they, uh, they were, were reading this uh, with students and they, they had to come sit up in front of the pulpit. And in the middle of the law portion of the sermon, uh, they turned into dust um, and disappeared. So watch out. Uh, no, so, so there is there, uh, there is there's a long tradition of this sort of anxious bench of you're naughty we're going to bring you up front. Um, uh, uh, it's sort of the opposite now, and that's why I, I sit in the back. Um, but it's it is um, yeah it's it's a long tradition. But Finney, man, he perfected things. I wish Finney sold chicken or something because he would have been great at it, and it probably been great chicken. But at churches, he sucked. All right, let's uh, just do one or two more. We've got, I think we've got, Cindy raised her hand in the back. No, you're fine. You're good. You don't want to hear it. You're like, I got to get out of here. This kid will talk forever. <laughs> yeah, you can talk a little bit about the, uh, the Calvary Chapel's use of the media. And I, I moved out here in the late 80s from Minnesota, I guess. And I got sucked into Calvary Chapel. And uh, I was just, I guess I was just, I want to put it this way, I was remembering my baptism at that time for the first time. Yeah. <laughs> and anyway, I depended on that radio ministry. I mean, it was just, when I was unemployed, I listened to it 24 hours a day. And I mean, they, they were they the first church to harness the radio like that in a, in a teaching sort of method? Nope. I'll tell you the first, the first church to do it. Lutheran church. This is the LCMS. Yeah, I, I talked with Dr. Schramm this week. He came in and, and told me a little bit more um, about the history of the LCMS and its use of media. It's very interesting uh, that that we've gone from from that to hot air balloons. Uh, that there was happened. <laughs> that yeah, that, no, actually we did. Um, but but Calvary Chapel has a lot of money, got a lot of money, and they have their own station, um, and <clears throat> they've got their own preachers and they've got characters. And so they've got an audience because they've got characters. And so they're the ones that you can hear uh, at any time on the dial. And that's where my sort of fascination with this came from was because it was everywhere. It's ubiquitous. All right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to stop now. Next week we'll talk about the Emergent Church. I'll take lots of questions. Uh, thank you very much uh, for listening to this stuff. Have a good Sunday.